little known fact where nobody knows your name is not filmed in front of a live studio audience. Snack on those facts. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Where Nobody Knows Your Name. This episode is called The Boys in the Bar. Yes, it is. It aired on 27th of January, 1983. 1983, January. It's a winter wonderland. It's Boston. We're in a bar. Setting the scene. Thank you, John. You're welcome. So this episode was written by Ken Levine and David Isaacs. Good friends, Ken and Dave. We're familiar with these guys by now. They've written a couple of episodes. Who's it directed by? Wow, I think James Burroughs. Yeah, need we say more. But let's just assume he's done all of them. Unless otherwise specified. So, cold open. Before we get into the main bit, we get covered. And Harry gets out of there. He's a silver-tongued trickster. He's the best person in the bar. Oh, he's great. Swindling his way through everything. But no, a really good, well-written episode. Quite ahead of its time. Quite a poignant episode. There's a lot going on. Very ahead of its time, but of its time in the same respect, I guess. Needed when it was uh, aired. Yes, but it's interesting you say that because they did get pushback from Mm. the studio for yeah. writing this episode and for- particularly because they were struggling in the first season to get viewership they took a big risk in writing this episode and I think it paid off NBC deemed that it was too risky for Cheers and that's mainly because the episode hinges on uh, homosexuality as a topic and especially looking at that through the lens of patrons of a sports bar we see uh, a lot of the characters that we've grown to sort of really admire in quite a strange light in present day in this episode they're really split in two camps and two perspectives on the issue because what this episode is about is one of Sam's former teammates, Tom Kenderson, played by Alan Archery, he is releasing an autobiography, which Sam thinks is just detailing the heydays of baseball, and he thinks it's just going to be about the debauchery that him and Tom got up to. However, what it's actually about is how Tom Kenderson's struggles with his sexuality affected his baseball career. And how he repressed it quite a lot. Exactly. From the outside, my days in baseball seemed glorious. But the greater my fear became of my true sexuality, the more I compensated with typical Don Juan promiscuity. Does that explain it? I don't know. I've only read it once. Which is quite heavy. Unfortunately, Sam did not read the book. So when it comes to do a press conference at Cheers, they start asking questions about the book, the journalist. However, Sam doesn't quite understand what they're referring to until one of the journalists explicitly refers to Tom's sexuality. Sam seems to get caught quite a guard, really. But he gathers himself and actually he's coped very well. You know, he's really proud of his friend. The thing which he struggled with most is, I suppose, the concept of how he saw Tom interacting in the past, particularly with groups of women in their hedonistic days, compared with this new revelation about Tom. And to Sam, he can't match those two ideas together. I suppose it's how he projected himself and Tom before he realised was that they do everything together and that they're like two of a kind best friends. Now Sam feels that he's being reflected. But he talks to Diane and Tom's noticed that Sam's gone to the pool room to talk to Diane and Tom kind of sheepishly tries to leave the bar and then Sam says I'll serve you a drink how you like them on the house this small gesture of support shows like he's welcome at cheers which sets up the main plot of the episode now that Sam's accepted Tom into the bar the main plot kicks off because Norm expresses a concern about cheers turning into Vito's pub which he says has a history where it used to be his local and then an LGBT group hired a function room Norm says that the bar changed he no longer goes back because it's now a gay bar. Got ferns. Norm can't cope with that. I would love ferns. I like naming plants. Yeah, I like a bar that has some plants up in there. Yeah, shut up, Norm. Norm wants just oars and moose heads. 
Which I don't think there is an orange here. I don't think there's a moose head. There might be one in the office. Oh, yeah, there is actually. But Norm doesn't go in the office. No, he doesn't know that. But yeah, so Norm sort of leads this gang. Jack's in there, Cliff's in there, but Cliff's his usual weird self. And <laughs> any statements he makes are just surreal. Yeah, and a few other people. They're trying to uh, essentially stop Sam from allowing people to be in the bar. And it becomes a bit of a... Us and them. Yeah, it becomes very us and them. And I noticed in the last third of the episode when Diane, because she's a waitress and obviously talks, to customers. Yeah. Some customers tell Diane that they were so proud of Sam for not only letting Tom do the press conference there, but serving Tom mm. without causing any issue about it. And Sam yeah. just being like, he's my friend. I don't care either way. And you know, they say this to Diane and Diane then says to Norm, there are two people in the bar now who are homosexuals. And from then it takes on a weird Agatha Christie thing where everyone yeah. in the bar is trying to deduce who it is. You know, it's like, and then there were none or Murder on the Orient Express where people are just suspicious of everyone. Yeah, yeah, I guess it does take that kind of vibe. But they land on some people fairly quickly and will not accept that it could be anyone else. Based on this stereotypical view, it really does not shed good light on Norm or Cliff or any of the patrons, really. No. Carter's justification. Carter's justification is, again, odd. I mean, I get enough competition from women. I'm telling you, if guys keep coming out of the closet, there isn't going to be anybody left to date, and I'm going to have to start going out with girls. (laughs) Carla, you don't have to worry about me. I like my dates a little more masculine than you. Not much, but a little. Sam is led as a person who's conflicted about this because he doesn't want to lose his bar and business, but he knows morally where he stands. And that's the inherent issue. Is he going to do the pragmatic thing, which would likely be at that time, keep the bar open for as many people as possible, or would it be the moral thing? Fortunately, throughout the episode, he realises he can do both. And I think that is his morals are led by his friend and by Diane, who sees everything that Norm and Cliff and the rest are doing as ridiculous, yeah. because it is. And he's led to do the right thing which is really good for the show but then Norm thinks he's smarter than that and tries to close Cheers early oh Norm's a wily yeah. barstool yeah he's, I he's don't a know. wily barstool what's his game decides that he's going to close Cheers by everyone getting their coats on and yeah. leaving poor old coach believes him what are you talking about last call Norm it's quarter to seven Whoop, no time for last call these glasses have to be off the tables by seven bells I've realised that this episode, Coach doesn't really have an opinion one way or another. No. Do you know what I thought was actually quite interesting is that the show loosely talks about the topic of homosexuality back in, like, episode two. It was two. episode two, and it yeah. was Coach who was meant to be the person struggling with it, because it was when Leo, who came to the bar for advice because his son's partner was a man, and Leo did not know how to cope with this, and Coach gave him advice on this, which might be why Coach in this episode is quite indifferent, because he's like, I've seen, or I've given advice for a situation dealing with homosexuality and homophobia and I don't see what the big deal is, perhaps. Yeah, and I think it's interesting for the show that they were able to build on that as well and do it almost more vocally about that there should be acceptance and that there shouldn't be this big divide. And I think the kind of way that they show that best is at the end of the episode, after all of them come back in from the 7pm fake closure. Yeah. Diane reveals that the two people be following Norm around everywhere. That they're still in the bar and that Norm had no idea. And it's about pulling the rug out from under Norm where he now realises that there's not a big difference and that it shouldn't be something that he should be scared about or should be intolerant of and that he should be more accepting. It's finally addressed who the two gay people are in the bar are when Diane says they're still here they've been finding what you're doing hilarious because you're making a fool of yourself uh, and then they both kiss Norm on the cheek and Norm points to one of them and goes, Better than Vera. 
which I thought was a nice touch. So, Alan Autry as Tom Kenderson. He also appeared in Brewster's Millions, Popeye, and Southern Comfort. He's the main guest of this episode. Bit of a MacGuffin, you might say. Still with the MacGuffins. The rest of the guest cast are a lot of the patrons involved in this goose chase, I suppose. However, I've noticed that quite a lot of them have appeared in other LGBT programming. So, John Furley as Larry also appeared in Queer as Folk as Craig Taylor. Michael Kearns, who played Richard, narrated L.A., A Queer History, and appeared as Don Jackson in The Stonewall Nation. Both of these are documentaries. Okay. Do you know Stonewall? No. Stonewall is referring to the Stonewall in New York, and it was the first openly LGBT bar, and the Obama administration made it a... Heritage site. Yeah. They made it preserved, so destruction isn't allowed to happen to this building because of its cultural impact. Quite interesting and very notable. That's quite powerful. Yeah. So they were interviewed within those documentaries. He played Don Jackson, I assume, in... Constructed footage in the Stonewall Nation. I'm not seeing either of those documentaries, but I do find it notable that he appeared in both mm. of them. Kenneth Tigar, who played Fred, appeared as Dr. Gordon in Dallas, Fritz Heath in Dynasty, and a guest role as John in Will and Grace. It was a sitcom which was one of the first sitcoms to heavily feature gay characters. Okay. And it came under a fire a bit for doing so. When it first started airing, they didn't mention in articles and things about it that the characters were gay. They just let the audience figured that out. It even had a sequel series recently. Came back for a few episodes and James Burroughs directed many episodes of Will and Grace also. He's done a lot of sitcoms. Yeah. What I did think as, as well which was quite nice to highlight was the episode was given an award by the Alliance of Gay and Lesbian Artists in the entertainment industry in the year it was released as well. So it just shows that despite scepticism that the episode would be too risky from producers, it shows that it did pay off and it had a really good message that was needed to be put out there and it was also nominated for the Outstanding Writing in a comedy series in the same year. By GLAD, was it? Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. It won an award from them too. But I, I was on about the Outstanding Writing for Primetime Emmys. Well. Oh yes, it won quite a few awards. 1983 Media Award from GLAD. So I think it shows a pretty significant episode yeah. within the series. Very ahead of its time also, I'd say, because the bar still very much those issues going on. There was an incredibly low rate of athletes coming out as gay. Obviously, we can't determine which ones are gay until come out, but statistically speaking, the amount of athletes which come out of gay is not in tally with the percentage of the population. So you would expect more athletes to be gay than there are. In fact, according to statistics last year, 4.1% of Americans identify as being in the LGBTQ community. With there being 1,696 players in the NFL, this would mean that statistically there should be approximately 69 gay NFL players. Mm. However, only 11 have come out. So massively. Massively disparate, which shows how important this episode it actually is. And I think as when it came out, when they were at time recording, they recorded in front of a live audience, it was said that the filming was dead silent and the audiences didn't really respond to it in any way. The quote was, it was dead silent, you could hear crickets. Is that from... That's from Ken. Ken yeah. yeah. Ken Levine, the writer. And it just shows how we think things come a long way, but the figures that you're saying about only 11 people, there's obviously a huge amount more improvement to be made. One thing I did notice is it is inspired by the true story of L.A. Dodgers player Glenn Burke. Obviously they've taken elements from real life and shown that it is something which is happening today and they wanted to put it in this show because they knew that it would be a powerful venue for them to do that. Ted Dodson actually advised Ken Levine to not change a word of the script 
despite the studio and the producer's protests because he knew how powerful it mm. could be. There is a sports reference, John. When Tom comes out in Cheers, Carla approaches him and says, Say it ain't so, Tom. That's a reference to Say it ain't so, Joe, regarding Shoeless Joe Jackson. Okay. Do you remember me talking about Shoeless Joe? Vaguely. He was a player for the White Sox. In the 1919 World Series, when the White Sox were paid to throw the World yeah. Series, Joe Jackson was a member of the team, and when the news came out that the team was throwing the game, a child, an 8 or 10 year old boy, went up to Joe Jackson and said, say it ain't so, Joe. But as we've talked about previously, it became known in recent years, using sabermetrics, that Joe Jackson was playing to the top of his game, so yeah. it was redeemed. But I thought that this reference to Shoeless Joe was... Quite a nice callback to reality, I guess. That noise only means one thing, John. Is that trivia time, James? It is trivia time. Let's go for some trivia. Would you like to go first? I think you might get this one, because we mentioned it briefly before. What did Vito replace oars and moose heads with in their bar? Ferns. Plants and ferns, yeah. What is the name of Tom Kenderson's autobiography? James, I've got the same question for you. Catcher's Mask. Catcher's Mask. If Sam didn't read the book, I'd hope he read the title. And I thought the title might have... Obviously, there was something which was hidden about Tom. I thought that was heavily implied by the title. Homosexuality. Mm. Well, I didn't know if it implied homosexuality specifically. It doesn't imply that, but it implies that he was hiding something. Well, this is the thing. When I first watched the episode, I was unsure of how it was going to end. Didn't know whether the episode was pro-Diane or pro norm and it was quite nerve-wracking episode to watch because of that when you watch it a second time you pick up these various hints about what the episode's about so the title of the book first time i watched it i just was like that's a thing that baseball players wear but obviously it has the other meaning what is the name of the group who held a meeting in Vito's pub, prompting its change to a gay bar? Oh, I don't know. According to Norm, the answer is gays for the metric system or something. I like the fact that there's a group so passionate about the, the metric, metric system, system. <laughs> and there's a specific subcategory of that group. Yeah, it's very specific. <laughs> but they made a change. They made waves. Yeah. Good for them. My final question. Pretty sure you'll get it again, because we've already talked about it. What is the last line in the episode? Better than Vera. Correct. I've got one for you. What occasion does Cliff claim happens the first Thursday of every month at Cheers, stating it is the reason why the bar must close at seven? Seven bells. Seven bells is just 7pm. Oh, no then. The answer is Vive la Difference night. Vive la Difference. This this bar closes at seven? Well, uh, only on the first Thursday of every month. You see, we call it uh, Vive la Difference evening. We go home to our wives, girlfriends, uh, workbenches, power tools. This is the weirdest bar I've ever been in. But Coach believes this, doesn't he? <laughs> and Sam goes, Coach, why are you packing up everything? And Coach goes, Sam, it's Viva the Difference Night. Classic Coach. When will he land? Seven bells, John. Seven bells, last call. Early one tonight. So what are we thinking? I'm thinking, like the previous episode, that this episode showed how Cheers really is a community. And the staff may take some persuading, but they are supportive at the end of it all. I think this episode is a setup for the future, because we're left with Norm. It doesn't properly conclude, but I think it's an ongoing series, obviously. And I'd hope that if this ever comes up again, there won't actually be an issue. We'll wait and see how Norm reacts. But I think it was, again, it was about community, and it was about Sam putting the flag in the ground and saying this is my bar and everyone's welcome okay sam you know what kind of bar this could turn into it's not going to turn into the kind of bar that i have to throw people out of and i think that was the big thing about the episode it was about that flag in the ground of the show saying it but of the characters saying it as well saying this is a place where uh, everybody's welcome and everybody knows your name happy seven bells everyone thank you for listening mm-hmm.